Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Let us uh, let us lead off with prayer this morning for um, our neighbors and our colleagues and our friends, uh, whoever they may be and wherever they may be this morning. Um, I know that uh, on my heart today are Daryl Crouch, who uh, is a frequent guest on this program. He pastors a church in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. You're going to see Mount Juliet, Tennessee in the news today. Uh, it is a it, it is a small community about 20 miles east of Nashville where multiple homes and uh, and multiple other structures were damaged overnight in some pretty severe tor- tornadoes, multiple injuries. We also want to be praying for the people today in Hermitage, Tennessee. That's actually between downtown Nashville and Mount Juliet. Uh, you would recognize the name the Hermitage um, because it's it's actually a famous house of a of a of a former president. Um, and so let's be praying today for the loss of life. Let's be praying for the communities that will wake up this morning and as dawn breaks. Things will look radically different than they looked um, last night when everybody laid their head down on the pillow. Um, it's a it is a um, it's a stark reminder of just how fragile life is. And so this morning, um, maybe drive a little slower, maybe show a little more grace, maybe recognize that um, you know life is is literally but a breath, and um, the one who gives it can also take it away. Uh, and you and I are not promised tomorrow. And so in this moment, let us be people who acknowledge and glorify God, give him all of the honor due his name, place our trust in him, and get busy about the work of the Great Commission, Uh, because there are lots of people who do not know the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so let today be that day. Let today be the day that in light of the fragility of life. So for you, that might be, you know... Fear surrounding the the spread of the coronavirus. For you, it might be um, war in another part of the world. For you, it might be um, some sort of violence in your own family or neighborhood. Um, Whatever the cause, we all sort of recognize that this life is um, literally a heartbeat away from heaven or hell. And so for those of us living a heartbeat away from heaven, it's our responsibility Um, to genuinely care that a whole lot of other people are living a heartbeat away from hell. And so this morning, I just just want us to be mindful of that and prayerful about that, praying this morning for um, our our friends and neighbors and colleagues. Uh, We are planning to have Dan Darling on in the uh, bottom half of this hour. He lives in Mount Juliet. And um, and so let's just let's just pray that uh, power lines are up and running and Dan's able to join us so that we can get um, not only a report from the field, but have a great conversation with our colleague and friend. All right. First up this morning, Nick Pitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. He and I are going to talk about what most people are going to be talking about today, and that is Super Tuesday. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Joining me now, Nick Pitts. He is a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement and just a delightful conversational partner. So, Nick, welcome back. Why, hello, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning from one of the 14 states that will be hosting a primary today. Yes, and greetings to you from another of the 14 states that will be doing likewise. And most of our listening audience live in uh, in in the other 12 of the 14 states. And so um, it's, uh, it is it is a big day. It is Super Tuesday. Uh, for those who maybe missed this in the last 24 hours, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, uh, both uh, have dropped out of the race. They have also both endorsed Joe Biden, as has Beto O'Rourke. You will remember him. He uh, was an early candidate in the contest as well. I did find it interesting that when Joe Biden accepted Pete Buttigieg's uh, endorsement, he invoked the memory of his dead son and likened Buttigieg to Bo. Um, Joe Biden said this. uh, He reminds me of my son, Bo. I'm sorry uh, to talk about my son, Bo, so much, uh, but he is my soul. I just hope he's proud of me. And as I look over at Pete during the debates, I think to myself, you know, that's Bo. He has such an enormous character, such intellectual capacity and such a commitment to other people. Um, interesting that he would choose that moment um, to acknowledge that another candidate for the presidency is uh, is not only of an age to run for president, but young enough to be his son. Yeah, I, uh, one was just very much a, a shocking statement for those of us that have been following Joe Biden for a little bit since he's been on the public stage since the 80s uh, for over 30 years now. We know that uh, Joe is just very much a man that uh, wore his have wears his heart on his sleeve, is highly emotional. Just even last week, he was asked uh, uh, about the role of faith in his life. And David French highlighted this in his newsletter over the weekend, talking about how faith was one of the first principles that really got Joe through that ordeal of losing his son, Bo, to cancer. It was really a shining example. And then for uh, Vice President Biden to bring him up again last night at Chicken Scratch, which is a famous chicken restaurant here in the Dallas area, and comparing Bo, his late son, to Pete uh, was very much a uh, a, a touching but also a, a pretty revealing comment by Vice President Biden as he just had a as he continues this wave of momentum that we'll see if it translates into actual votes and then some delegates and maybe some victories today on this big Super Tuesday. All right. It might sound like in this next thing that I'm picking on Joe Biden. And so let me just say in advance that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to cover everybody uh, fairly. Uh, Joe Biden made a couple of gaffes uh, yesterday in relationship to today. First, he called today Super Thursday, which was just kind of funny. Um, but the second <laughs> We've one, all he... been there. We've all been there wanting the week just to be <laughs> no. much further along. <laughs> OK. And so and then this next one, we've all been there. But it's normally like in relationship to me trying to remember what the call in number is for the show, um, which is something that I say every day. So um, this next this next gaffe, um, I do think people are more concerned about. Joe Biden was trying to quote the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. And he said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That's a strong start. And then he said, all men. And then he added women, and I actually think that's what tripped him up. Um, all men and women are created by the, well, you know, the, well, you know the thing. He, he clearly you know lost, thing. you know, that thing. He either lost track of where he was because he tried to insert women uh, and be sure they didn't feel, you know, not included and covered in all men. Um, 
the other, you know, others are saying he didn't want to come right out and say God. I don't think Joe Biden has any problem coming out and acknowledging that God is the creator. Um, I, I suspect that it was just one of those things where you say something so many times and then if you add a word to it, you have totally messed yourself up. You know, it reminded me, Carmen, I don't know if any of your listeners are fans of the old show Seinfeld, but it reminded me of that Seinfeld episode where he just goes, yada, 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 and just kind of yada, 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 like parts of it away. He's like, you know, that thing, a thing. and um, You know, that thing. uh, Yeah. And so. (laughs) That Declaration of Independence thing. (laughs) And so it was just, I mean, what a time to be alive. I know that I say it, and I know that we can refrain from it. We've all, like you said before, I, my, I myself, if, my, if a camera was put in front of my face for 20 hours a day and I had a microphone that was recording everything that I said, I know that I've had slip-ups. I know that many of your listeners would say that they have slip-ups. Now, the difference being that we're all not running for president of the United States, but just remembering the context, because maybe some of your listeners are, are President or Vice President Biden supporters, some of your listeners might be President Trump supporters, but we're all cognizant of the fact that our leaders right now between Vice President Biden and President Trump are very much individuals that are not known for their precision with their words. And it, uh, word salad is often, uh, as Yuval Levin has coined in his National Review piece uh, regarding President Trump's rhetoric, is often something that's associated uh, with our current president. And as we saw highlighted yesterday in Vice President Biden, which is just so interesting when you consider the grand history of the American experiment and how typically presidents have not utilized their words often, but have used utilized their words precisely for particular points, whereas today it just seems uh, to be uh, almost the opposite. So just to be sure that, you know, I don't know, everybody's kind of aware of this. I know that you and Paul referred to it uh, today as that 70s show. We, we now <laughs> yeah. have, like, right, the, the remaining candidates um, for to serve as president of the United States on both sides um, yeah. are, are in their 70s. Uh, yeah, are in retirement age, yeah. Uh, we have President Trump is the oldest uh, candidate, male candidate for president right now. Uh, there, We've, uh, so I think that's a that's a. It's not necessarily a stinging indictment on the American experiment, but you would think that you had, uh, former President Clinton right now is age seventy three, who would be considered a young one on that stage, and he was in the presidency almost over twenty years ago. And we are just it is just such an interesting time right now, where we have just this uh, a very older field right now. But yet we both have a there's a discontentment that's often associated with being led by a younger generation, whether that's even boomer, to say the least. And that's just not the case right now, which is just a a fascinating place to be in. All right. So uh, Trump, Biden, Sanders, Bloomberg and Warren, that is uh, that is the field that is left. It will be likely winnowed down. Further again today on this Super Tuesday, obviously President Trump not not at risk of and uh, uh, any risk of failing <laughs> no, to no. win the Republican nomination. Um, but the others for the others, this really is an important day. When we come back, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna ask Nick to juxtapose um, these pieces related to uh, Elizabeth Warren and prayer, and then the current Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, and prayer, and how the media is covering um, those two storylines. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Returning to my conversation with Nick Pitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. You can also follow him on Twitter at JNickPitts. 
Um, Nick, there just feels to me uh, like every day there is a double standard in relationship to presentation of um, of faithful actions or actions related to faith, like prayer, um, or mm-hmm. or referring to directly to scripture, or having a pastor pray over you. Total double standard if you are on the right or on the left today in terms of politics. Journalism covers people praying for the president in one way, and they cover people praying for Elizabeth Warren in a completely different way. People cover, uh, or journalists cover um, uh, candidates for the presidency on the Democratic side praying for people in one way, um, or offering thoughts and prayers, or Nancy Pelosi doing the same, and Mike Pence offering prayers in the face of the coronavirus in a completely different way. What is going on Yeah. Yeah, Warren, I think social media has just, it's just so interesting to see how social media has just taken certain stories and really allowed the loud outlier voices to begin to shape how we view certain events. And so um, for listeners, uh, what Carmen is referring to is uh, Elizabeth Warren had individuals pray over her on Tuesday um, at a campaign event. And Warren has been very outspoken about her faith, very much taking up the branch of uh, what uh, Mayor Pete, before he left the campaign, said, uh, criticizing Democrats for being allergic to the faith. Warren and, and Buttigieg were individuals that really did try to reach out to communities of faith, which typically tended to be more progressive, mainline in nature. Now, Warren herself, I believe, is a Methodist, Sunday, former Methodist Sunday school uh, teacher. Um, and so it was very much seen um, by Religion News Service and various others uh, commenting on this story as beneficial, as good, as a scene, as an act of humility of what prayer really is. Prayer is simply is humbling ourselves, recognizing that we're in great need of both wisdom and action, and um, but and also from the Christian understanding, it's communion with the Lord and talking with Him, being uh, able to access Him at the right hand of the Father through the uh, resurrected work of Jesus. But then, um, over the weekend, um, Vice President Pence uh, was convening his uh, coronavirus uh, team, and there was a meeting and in the house there was a picture that was taken uh, sometime during the meeting when everyone was collected and individuals they were seen as praying uh, beforehand and there was one comment one tweet in particular that kind of went viral with the number of retweets as well as others that were commenting on the picture just acting with derision and painting and and making fun of Vice President Pence, really taking up and channeling that energy that we often hear after tragedy. Uh, There's something to be done. Quit praying and start doing something, which is just contradictory to the Christian narrative at the very core, saying that the greatest work is prayer, and that needs to be the first thing to do before anything. And so it's just, it's it's an act, it's a double standard, and it's just, it's, it's sickening. And, you know, just honestly, it's kind of exhausting and tiring for so many of us that are, are trying to say to ourselves, we can do both. We can, one, we can do the necessary work to be able to uh, bring flourishing and bring goodness to this world. But we can also take time to pray beforehand to ask for guidance because we're drawing on a long history of individuals within the great American human experiment that have called on the Almighty, uh, asking Him to help us in this time of need. Uh, it's the beginning of wisdom, right? Yeah. <laughs> to to yeah. bow to bow our knee and bow our head um, and say, God, I, I do not know exactly what to do, but I trust you 
Um, and then I trust you to to do in and through the ingenuity um, and, and collaborative effort of all of these people what is you know, what is good and what is best. I mean, even if I don't even understand it in the midst of it, I mean, I have to admit to you, Nick, there's just a lot going on in the world. You know, I'm, I'm clearly not in charge of and isn't going the way that maybe I think is preferred. Um, But I got to trust that God not only has the whole world in his hands, but he has the things that I see as problems. Um, He's got those in hand as well. Yeah. And I think if I'm, if I'm reading, if I'm watching some some of these individuals that are just attacking people for praying, I'm just like, I, I keep, I continue to go back to the word. I'm just exhausted by it. At the mm. end of the day, prayer, recognizing that we are we're in over our heads right now. This, there's a global, to a certain degree, there's a global health outbreak that's happening right now. Eight, you you, you a, came just short of using the word pandemic, but I'm, I'm not afraid to use it. 80,000 people. There's there's six people now that have died here in the U.S. There's just one case now that happened here in Dallas. We have more questions than we have answers. And in an Internet age, which we feel like we are the experts on everything, this is one thing that has confounded even the experts right now. And the idea that we shouldn't set aside a little time to pray and ask for guidance like George Washington did, like John Adams did, like Thomas Jefferson did, individuals that weren't, not all of them were known to be heroes of the faith, but nevertheless, they yielded themselves to the Almighty, believing it to be true that religion is an indispensable support, a pillar of this nation, as George Washington said. And the idea that you're going to act with derision on that just seems so exhausting. Yeah, absolutely. Scoffers. They're scoffers. Yeah. It's it's the Bible's I mean, you know, the Bible's clear about, you know, scoffers are going to come in the end days. So I just I just remind myself of that when I see their scoffing. Okay, before I let you go, we have one fun thing to talk about. Um okay. much like much like the appearance of Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration during the life of Jesus, Moses appeared. <laughs> um <laughs> Moses appeared you know? in Nashville, Tennessee at a major league soccer game and it kind of broke the internet. You know, for those, for your Tennesseans that are listening right now, we all know that Tennessee is the land, uh, of, it's the promised land, it's the land flowing with milk and honey. It makes no <laughs> surprise to us all these years later that he's finally made his way to the promised land and he's, he's rooting on uh, the Nashville's uh, soccer team. But just what a, what a great place, what a great place. And a city that responded to, in swarms, over 50,000 Swarms people of people to a, wanted to come to a Major League Soccer game, right? Because we <laughs> finally... Yeah. In the South. Unreal. Yeah. It's kind of cool. I just thought I'd bring it up today because um, I know you have an aff- affection uh, for uh, for Tennessee. And um, and it was one of those stories that it's just like, wow, when you when you think of the John 316 being held up at, at, uh, at games <laughs> and in venues, um, you know, in so many places and spaces across time in terms of sporting events... This was kind of a really fun way for an individual to lift up a biblical narrative um, and do so in just a really, it's really, really clever. So if you guys want to see pictures of it, um, all you have to Google is Moses in Nashville and uh, and it will pop up. Um, Yeah. And this is just another reason why your show is so great. The hound of heaven is haunting us everywhere we go all throughout (laughs) this world. And to be able to give words to it like you help your listeners do is so important. It's just really fun to have you on. Thanks, Nick. We really appreciate it. Nick Pitts, you can follow him on Twitter at JNickPitts. We'll be right back.
All right, next up, we're going to be talking with Dan Darling. Um, we're going to be actually talking about uh, something that Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez said a few days ago in Washington, D.C., during an oversight committee hearing. Um, but obviously, we're also going to check in with Dan um, just about what's happening in his own community this morning after last night's tornadoes. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I see it on parents' faces all the time. The stress and strain of dealing with a difficult child who's bent on self-destruction. The pressure of dealing with an out-of-control kid lands squarely on mom, dad, and their marriage. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you're struggling with your teen, you know the situation has the potential to pull families apart. Mom and dad, above all else, you need to protect your relationship. Make a commitment today that you'll do whatever you have to do to shelter and reignite the passion and respect in your marriage. Look at family struggles as something you both need to manage together. Stop the blame game. Don't avoid the pain and build in time to have fun. Keep your marriage strong. Find more parenting help from Mark Gregston at ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Reminder um, that we have a Northwestern Christian Writers Conference coming up uh, this summer. If you are interested in joining us, we'd invite you to visit the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference.com website. There's some uh, additional features this year that uh, that we haven't been doing in years past. So be, able, be be sure you check out the whole schedule, including um, some panel lunch options. Uh, those are new. Also, opportunities to have some one-on-one appointments. And, you know, if you don't schedule a one-on-one appointment with me, I will try not to have my feelings hurt. But that's okay because there's some really other (laughs) great people who are going to be there as well. So it's July 24 and 25 at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. You can find more information and register at NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. All right, so uh, I snuck that in. Did we already do a Mark Gregson and Parenting Today's Teen? Okay, so, you know, I'm, I kind of lost track of what we were doing this morning. So is Dan already available? Oh, fantastic. Dan Darling, um, uh, not only my brother in Christ, but my neighbor in the greater Nashville community, uh, Vice President of Communications for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, Dan, welcome this morning. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm coming by phone because we, we lost power at uh, our yeah. house. We're safe, so we're good. Well, and so we're thankful to God that you're safe. We're also praying, I know, right along with you with uh, for all of those families. Um, I know we're hearing from Urban Search and Rescue that they're they're searching hundreds of collapsed structures for people who might be trapped or injured. So um, just our hearts go out to the first responders, um, certainly to those who are even now waiting to be rescued, um, and uh, just lifting up our neighbors and our friends across the greater uh, Middle Tennessee area. Dan, um, yeah, you you and I are going to... Yeah. We, we've got some friends and family here in uh, this this area. Uh, we know we live, we lost their homes and, and things, so we're praying for all those folks. Absolutely. And we'll, uh, we'll trust you to uh, let us know how we can tangibly help as well. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to pray, which is what most of us um, know is the most important part of the formula um, until we can do 
uh, things that are tangible to to support our neighbors. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is uh, a member of the United States Congress, in a in a hearing recently. Now, first of all, let me just say that when I read the title of this oversight hearing, some of our listeners are going to say, well, that sounds biased just on the face of it. And so I know that going into this. So there was an oversight hearing entitled The Administration's Religious Liberty Assault on LGBTQ Rights. And it was a hearing designed to, quote, examine the administration's actions to erode LGBTQ rights in multiple areas, including health care, employment, adoption, and foster care. And so what, what we're going to listen to now is some audio of uh, Congresswoman Orcasio-Cortez, and then Dan Darling and I are going to walk through this as a means of how would we converse with people who hold these kinds of views, and how would we do so in a way that honors Jesus? So that's, that's the conversation we're going to have. Let's hear the audio. It's, it's very difficult to sit here and listen to arguments in the long history of this country of using scripture and weaponizing and abusing scripture to justify bigotry. White supremacists have done it. Those who justified slavery did it. Those who fought against integration did it. And we're seeing it today. And sometimes, especially in this body, I feel as though if Christ himself walked through these doors and said what he said thousands of years ago, that we should love our neighbor and our enemy, that we should welcome the stranger, fight for the least of us, that it is easier for a rich man, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into a kingdom of heaven, he would be maligned as a radical and rejected from these doors. And I know, and it is part of my faith, that all people are holy, and all people are sacred, unconditionally. And that is what makes faith sometimes, that's what what prompts us to transform, because it is unconditional. It's not about that it is up to us to love parts of people. We love all people. There is nothing holy about rejecting medical care of people, no matter who they are on the grounds of what their identity is. There is nothing holy about turning someone away from a hospital. There's nothing holy about, about rejecting a child from a family. There's nothing holy about writing discrimination into the law. And I am tired of communities of being of faith being weaponized and being mischaracterized because the only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. I'm tired of it. Okay, I know that the audio was long. That was Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You may know her uh, as AOC, Dan Darling, sort of initial uh, deep breath reactions to what she said. Well, it's it's a pretty um, brazen set of statements that she made, um, uh, clearly reflecting that uh, I, I don't think that the congresswoman really understands uh, the nature of communities of faith, particularly, you know, our own Southern Baptist community, but but evangelicals and Catholics and and uh, 
Muslims and Orthodox Jews who really um, have, have, you know, feel like religious freedom is a serious issue, that we, we want to have the freedom to practice our faith according to our beliefs and not have the government sort of pave over our conscience. So it, it, it clearly refle- reflects that she, she doesn't really understand the arguments that we're making in, in defense of religious liberty. So I think that um, in terms of walking through this almost phrase by phrase, when she says, I'm experiencing this hearing, I'm struggling uh, whether or not to respond, um, you know, in one way, she's saying, you know, in one way or another as a legislator or from the perspective of a woman of faith. I, I really think that the hinge for me is right there, Dan. She does not see her service um, and, and what is she's doing vocationally uh, as integrated with her faith. And, and then later on, she's going to distinguish her own personal faith from the faith of any recognizable community of faith um, in terms of, of her, set, her set of theological ideas. So I think she's indicative of the way we have so individualized faith in America that you can literally say anything anywhere and be considered an authority on it. Yeah, that's true. And I, and I think there's this, there's this notion, unfortunately, you know, religious liberty was only controversial, has only been controversial in the last maybe, um, you know, half decade. Uh, and it's, it's just a shame really that we've, we've made it so controversial, but it's this idea that, you know, faith is okay. If you just kind of go on Sunday and do your thing in church. Um, but if it impacts and affects your conscience throughout the rest of the week, if it impacts the way that you work or, uh, you know, the way that you do business, then then a lot of people are saying that the state should not let you have the, the right to do that. And um, <clears throat> this is a core, a foundational value, uh, foundational American value, religious liberty is. And um, it, it's really, it's really shocking to, to, to see that. And really what she's talking about here is, you know, um, the state having the power to force Christian institutions and other religious institutions to violate, you know, 2,000-year-old beliefs in order to satisfy the demands of the sexual revolution. You know, this is not about um, bigotry or any of that. It's just about, will you let Christian institutions practice according to their faith statements, or will the sexual revolution just kind of steamroll over that and force people to affirm um, what their faith does not allow them to affirm. She makes direct reference to Jesus, who she imagines would be driven out of Congress today if he showed up um, and said things, which she then acted as if she were quoting, um, but some of which Jesus didn't quite say. And so in her um, in her speech condemning those who misquote and use, misuse Scripture, she does the same, sort of paraphrasing uh, Jesus from both Matthew 5 and Matthew 25. Um, it, she also seems um, somewhat unaware of the entire effort uh, uh, being waged in this country by the freedom from religion people who don't think Jesus belongs as a voice in Congress. Yeah, that is interesting because we've heard a lot of arguments that you sort of need to just um, not invoke Jesus at all, and not invoke God at all, and here she is, kind of invoking her faith. It's, it's interesting double standard, I think, by liberals to to want Christians to not invoke their faith. And you know, anytime someone like Vice President Pence or someone else prays or invokes their name, you know, everyone screams about theocracy. 
but it's okay to do that in, in favor of progressive priorities. Look, everybody comes to the table with, with a set of uh, values. Everyone comes to the table with religion, with faith. The question is just, where is your faith? And uh, some, of the, some of the ways that she quoted Jesus, she was right. Jesus did say, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus also said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the gods the things that are God's. In other words, there are things uh, that uh, God has um, delegated authority to the state that we should we should give them, our taxes and obey the laws. Uh, but there are things that God has not given to the state. He's not given the state the power over the conscience. We're not made and fashioned in the image of the state. We're, we're created in the image of God. And so I think she gets those things wrong. Uh, on that, and and it's just very um, disconcerting to to have a sitting member of Congress so uh, just articulate almost a war on um, religious institutions and their ability to to, to do what uh, they feel God has called them to do and to obey uh, their their faith statements that you know that are adhere to two thousand year old church doctrine. And so that that's something that's very concerning. So Dan Darling and I are going to take a brief break. When we come back, um, we're going to talk about uh, a a little bit more this particular issue and specifically um, what Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez is seeking to address in terms of um, uh, the conversation at hand in the moment when she is speaking uh, at this hearing. We're also going to talk about what she gets wrong in terms of characterizing religious freedom as only invoked in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Um, I'm frankly tired of that. So we'll be right back. All right. My conversation partner this morning is Dan Darling. Um, uh, Among other things, he works for an organization that has uh, religious liberty in its title. Uh, and so he is a vice president with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And um, and Dan, you work on messaging a lot. You work on you work in the area of communications. You work at the intersection of religious liberty concerns um, and what the government is is doing. I mean, that's actually like kind of your sweet spot. And so um, thank you for helping us kind of walk around in this. Um, I don't know. People are calling it a screed. This speech that was made by a member of Congress, uh, Alexandria, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Um, I want to move to the part of her messaging where she says, my faith commands me. And I want to pause there. Um, and I, and I, I just want to say, um, what does that mean today in, in sort of this cultural moment? Well, well, again, I think the one part of her speech that I agreed with is that acknowledging that she does have a faith, you know, because I think there's, there's often this dichotomy of, you know, you, you religious people, that's cute what you do over there on Sundays, you know, particularly you, you Christians, uh, but we're people over here who believe in science and, you know, we don't, you know, we're rational. And and the truth is that that's not, that's just a false dichotomy. Everybody comes to the table with a set of presuppositions. They come to the table with a, with a set of uh, ideals. And so she is correct on that. Um, I do think she's kind of um, fashioning Jesus sort of around her progressive ideals, you know, and this is a common thing, not just for progressive, but also conservatives can fall prey to this, where, you know, Jesus kind of becomes the mascot for our political positions and our our politics kind of shapes our faith and shapes our version of our vision of Jesus rather than uh, our faith shaping our politics and, and Jesus as Lord over all shaping the way we see everything. And, and I think that's really what's at stake here. I think there's a collision here between um, 
sexual freedom, sexual the sexual revolution, and religious liberty. And religious liberty has long been a cherished ideal in American history, a bipartisan ideal. Um, but it it is you know it is hitting a a serious foe in this idea of religious uh, sexual revolution that nothing should uh, stop anybody from um, sort of the sexual freedom they they want, and not only that. Uh, kind of demanding that people not only um, accept people's uh, sexual choices, but uh, affirm them and, and almost solemnize them and celebrate them. So I think it's almost like a reverse proselytization where um, almost for, you know forcing people, forcing institutions to uh, bow down and believe to a false god. So this was uh, a direct... Um, attack on an institution, in this case, a Catholic hospital. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez um, has previously ca- claimed to be Catholic, and so she is um, you know, openly in opposition to an institution that is a part of the faith community that, at least at one point, she said um, you know, was, was her faith community. It, what she's talking about here in terms of the specifics, um, she is addressing a particular individual who she r- describes as Mr. Minton. Now, Mr. Minton is a biological female who identifies as a male who, according to testimony that was offered a little bit earlier in the same hearing, is suing a Catholic hospital for not performing a hysterectomy, quote, because the surgery was related to uh, my gender transition. And so when she says her faith commands her, she's clearly not saying what the church that she says she's a part of um, understands about human identity. Um, about the mutilation of the flesh, about male-female relationships, about transgenderism. Um, and, and she's not where her church is or her faith community is um, on the issue of life and abortion um, either. And so I'm, um, I, the reason that I want to lift that up is I do think that each and every one of us um, falls. Uh, it's tempting. We, it's very tempting to sort of construct our own individualized faith and forget that what we're talking about ultimately is supposed to be the faith, the faith once delivered to the saints, not some just abstract cobbled together syncretized thing that I came up with in the 21st century that fits my fits my life and my personal desires. But actually, there's substance to the faith. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. I mean, genuine faithful Christians believe that faith is not something that you you shape around your preferences. It's not something you know that we believe that. Uh, God has revealed himself in his word, in the scriptures. And uh, there is a body of truth that passes from generation to generation. Uh, Jude called this, you know, the faith once delivered to the saints, that there's a story from Genesis to Revelation of a God who who redeems and rescues uh, and calls out a new people. And this is, this is when, when genuine Christians talk about faith, this is what we talk about. Um, I know the idea of faith can sort of be nebulous today, that it can kind of be anything you, you want it. But when we talk about Christianity, this is what we talk about. And again, it's not just progressives like uh, AOC who sometimes get this wrong. It, it could be people across the political spectrum when we sort of reach for something that we call our faith uh, as a kind of defense uh, mechanism or just as a kind of way of describing ourselves, when really we are calling people as, as Christians to look and behold Jesus. And who's the author and finisher of our faith? And this this is how we we define it when we go on Sundays. This is uh, like like the Christians of the first century. This is not just 
a pious thing we do once a week, but this is something that we submit our whole lives to, and it reorders everything we do. And as Christians, I think, when we hear people like AOC uh, make these statements, our first reaction is to be very angry and very defensive, but we should expect uh, people who don't share our beliefs beliefs in Jesus to be defensive. I mean, to to uh, not understand um, what we're saying. We should even expect opposition. Jesus promised it, that it happened to him, and it will happen to those who follow him. The servant's not greater than his Lord. And so we should not be surprised that in the 20th century, even in a ostensibly Christian country, uh, to practice the true faith, uh, to follow Jesus wherever he leads, is going to invite opposition. It's going to invite hardship. It's going to invite scorn. And we should be prepared for that. Um, and we should be the people who joyfully soldier on and joyfully live out our faith despite opposition, despite um, scorn, and not give um, those who oppose us any reason uh, by our behavior to, uh, to to doubt what we're saying. So. Dan, thank you as always uh, for your clear thinking and for your uh, the pastoral tone with which you approach these conversations. Uh, blessings upon you. Everyone's Wilson today, so we're going to send people to everyoneswilson.org if they want to know how they can help um, our neighbors in the greater uh, Middle Tennessee area affected by the tornadoes. Give our, um, give our greetings to our brother Daryl. I know you'll talk with him today. Um, and I thank will. you again. Thank you again so much. All right. Thank you, Carmen. I appreciate it. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.